0: While every season is special at Biltmore, there's just something about autumn. It's the perfect time to wander and explore the color-splashed gardens and grounds of Biltmore Estate. Or take a guided cycling tour on a crisp, cool morning. Then toast to the season's fleeting beauty with a complimentary wine tasting. Fall won't last forever. Savor it while you can at Biltmore. Stay and save up to 20% on select dates at Biltmore.com.
1: Impact of Influence, The Murdoch Family Murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. truth. Hello, friend, Matt Harris and Seton Tucker. Always grateful to have you join us and spend time with us. How do they find us, Seton? You can find us on
0: our Facebook page, which is Murdoch Podcasts, and on our website, which is MurdochPodcast.com.
1: And please rate and share the episode. We'd appreciate that. And people are reaching out to us, especially about the last episode, as we knew it would be a lightning rod, the episode with Sarah Azari and Jim Griffin. Now, some people asked about some of the questions that we didn't ask. And in many cases, there were questions we didn't ask because there's ongoing litigation that Jim Griffin was unable to speak of. And he uh, told us some of us beforehand. And another reason, because uh, we're not like the uh, in-your-face gotcha kind of show.
0: No, we're more, I mean, I, I, we're just not aggressive people. And I think that's sometimes why people choose to talk to us. Yes.
1: Anyway, I think we did ask what questions I think most people wanted to know. Maybe we missed one. That's possible. But we appreciate you, you reaching out to us about that. And here's a, a positive one.
0: Well, we had one star and five stars, so it was a polarizing episode yes. as we anticipated. But this review says Matt and Seaton seem like two people I l- could hang out with. I listened to many podcasts about this whole topic, and this is by far my favorite. The host recognized that just like us, they're human. They also do not claim to be experts and also seek both sides of issues at hand. One thing really made me admire them was their recent interview with Jim Griffin. I appreciate them speaking with the prosecution as well as the defense, because this is exactly what a trial is, two-sided. They are not set in their minds to think one way over another, truly unbiased reporting and opinions. I'm also thankful they skip over exaggeration like some other commentators on the Murdoch saga. Thank and you, Matt
1: and Seaton. That was nice. Thank you. Uh, this is from Ellen, and she says, Hello, I've listened to your podcast since the beginning and appreciate how you seem to value remaining neutral and hosting guests with differing viewpoints. However, in my opinion, being fair host does not mean you have to allow guest airtime to make ridiculous statements in an unchecked manner. I was happy to hear Miss Tucker offer some pushback when your most recent guests, Mr. Griffin and Mrs. Ari, chose to imply that it was biblically wrong for Sandy Smith to choose to exhume Stephen's body. But for you, Seaton, for at least commenting that Miss Smith has the right to do what she sees is appropriate. Mr. Griffin's extreme statement also caused me to wonder why he felt the need to shame Ms. Smith for a decision. He is certain his client is not involved and she is not using public resources, so why is he feeling so fearful? Thanks for the perspectives you have offered through your podcast. I think you'd be proud of what you have created. Best, Ellen. Thank you, Ellen. I, I do want to explain that, though. I think there was a misunderstanding about when Jim Griffin was talking about what what she wrote in the email, was to imply that it was biblically wrong for Sandy Smith to choose to exhume Stephen's body. That is not what he was saying. They were referring to case law. 1915 was the only case law they could find in South Carolina about how to go about exhuming a body. So he was referring to what was written in the 1915 case law. And it was interesting because, you know, how many states in case law are quoting the Bible and make a biblical reference? It was not his opinion or thought or or Sarah's either. It was just something that was written in uh, South Carolina uh, law.
0: Yeah,
1: and also uh, I didn't. I was under no impression that he tried to shame her. I don't believe that's what he was doing. I think he even said at the beginning how awful it must be for a mother to lose a son. I don't think that's what he was doing. I think we we're talking about the case law. And what Sarah was talking was about was, if the body's exhumed, would it prove anything other than possibly could prove murder, but SLED has ruled it a homicide. So that's what they're just all from a legal perspective, not uh, saying anything bad about she can do whatever she wants with her money and her son. And, and ex, uh, you know, I'm not sure how it's going to play out legally as, as far as her getting Stephen's body exhumed, but if she can and she wants to, cool.
0: Yeah, we're fully supportive of whatever effort she sees fit.
1: Absolutely. Coming up, we're going to have the directors of the HBO documentary, Low Country, the Murdoch Dynasty. Interesting take. And by the way, we recorded that interview before the Murdoch case even went to trial. We've been holding on to it, but things got so busy. So take that into consideration when you're listening. We want to start with the sale of Moselle, which of course is the Murdoch, Compound, for lack of a better term, where the murders of Maggie and Paul took place. The property under Maggie's name, 1,770 acre. It's known as Moselle, as I said. It sold for $3.9 million to Jeffrey Godley and James Iyer. And they have not said publicly what they intend to use the land for.
0: I know that Godley owns a adjacent property. I think it's a farm, so I, I'm guessing he's going to just roll that into his farming operation.
1: The property's value was had this; it was encumbered by about two million dollars in mortgages and lawyers' fees, and various parties that were looking for money in the various settlements of all the Murdoch mess that was created. So, what do we know about how some of that money was divided up?
0: Yes, Buster Murdoch is going to receive. Five hundred and thirty thousand dollars. There are uh, about two hundred and ninety thousand in estate fees and legal expenses. Sixty-five hundred and some change to Laura Jones. I believe she was an interior designer who had a lien against Maggie's estate. There's a little over twelve thousand to John Marvin Murdoch, who had advanced some personal funds on behalf of the estate. There is also $100,000 to go to Joe McCullough as legal counsel for Connor Cook to release Connor Cook's claim against Buster Murdoch for the 2019 wrongful death suit arising from the boating accident in which Mallory Beach was killed. We have $275,000 going to the co receivers, and that leaves a balance of $2.686 million, which will go to Mark Tinsley. As legal counsel for Renee Beach and also Morgan Dowdy and Miley Altman, who all have civil suits in the boating crash.
1: Now, let's move on to the auction of the items from the Moselle property. And Seton, you and I talked a bit. We were kind of surprised at how into this auction the items people were.
0: Oh my gosh, we've gotten so many questions. It really has seemed to go viral. I mean, Definitely some interesting items, but we're going to bring on Aubrey Dempsey, who's been with us before. He actually attended the
1: auctions. Aubrey, welcome.
2: Hi, how are you? Good, Good. to see you again.
1: Set up the scene. Is it in a big warehouse type thing or how's it done?
2: Yeah, it's a big uh, metal warehouse. Uh, the front room, as they call it, is all air conditioned. Um, it's got the concession stand on that end. And the back room is a, another uh, huge warehouse type room, uh un-air conditioned. And in both spaces, you've got tables just lined up um, end to end to end from uh, one end of both buildings to the other. Larger furniture um, all around the the perimeters of the buildings, and also on the, um, on the one end where you saw the the sofa and loveseat uh, combo, that all that leather furniture was all on one end together with some of the bigger pieces.
0: How many people were actually at this auction? Were there a lot of people? Uh,
2: if I had to estimate, I would say it was well into the thousands. Oh
0: well, wow! Well,
2: wow. Yeah. When I say um shoulder to shoulder with barely room to move, I'm not exaggerating at all it's it was crazy. I got there uh first bidding started at four o'clock. I rolled in about three twenty five and it was already uh getting really busy but by the time the um the bidding actually started it was it was just wall to wall and and warm it got a little hot in there as a metal building typically does and it uh was just definitely uh a crowded uh kind of event
1: wow so how long did the auction last?
2: I left there at nine fifteen, nine thirty, and it was still going strong. Wow.
0: Tell us what some of the bigger items that sold. I mean, first of all, we need to talk about the couch, the alibi couch.
2: Um, yes, that all of that furniture sold, they sold it in individual pieces. I think their theory is they've got more for it that way, but they sold it in individual pieces, as well as the rug that it was sitting on. So Everything that you saw in those photographs of the leather furniture, the end, end tables, basically the whole room—it um, could it all went together. And actually, ended ultimately ended up being to one bidder, and uh, he is going to set up some sort of hunt club uh, room with it or something. I can't remember exactly what his plan uh, was, but yeah, it all ended up going to one place, just shy of thirty-five thousand dollars for the whole group, mm. and that's the bidding price. That's what a lot of people don't, don't know if you've never attended an auction. Um, auction houses do a an upcharge, sort of a house charge. Um and this particular auction house did fifteen percent for every bid price. So you take fifteen percent plus another eight percent of Georgia sales tax. So it runs the price on up there a good bit.
1: Wow. So uh the motif obviously people were interested in a hunting lodge motif. It, the things I saw were in fact PETA didn't PETA say they wanted to donate it or something. But there was like turtle lamps oh those were so they
0: were really kind of creepy to me those turtle lamps they had someone someone posted on twitter i can't remember who it was about saving the the turtle population of south carolina or something was funny
2: (laughs) yeah right yeah those turtle lamps um we several of us were talking about those and we think that those may have been leftover inventory from when maggie had the shop um and that would really be the only logical explanation for why somebody would need that many turtle lamps. I can't think of any <laughs> other real explanation for it.
1: Wait, I mean, how many uh, were there?
2: Oh, there must have been 25 of them. Wow. They were just <laughs> up, you know, lots of them. And they were selling them uh, in pairs. And some of the pairs went right on up into the couple, couple $3,000 for a pair. For a pair? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was crazy. And what they were doing with some of those items where you had multiples, like, Back in the back room, uh, they had one full um, eight-foot folding table of nothing but deer antlers. Some were, you know, complete deer antlers with the skulls um, where they were European mounts. Um, Some mounted two pieces of wood, some just loose. Then they had just ordinary sheds that had been found in the woods somewhere. Uh, And so they started auctioning those off, and that would be uh, whatever your bid is, you get choice choice of however many you want. So the bidding would go right on up, and the first set of antlers went for four hundred seventy-five dollars, uh, and then it went on from there, and they just went just one after the other after the other, and then eventually got down to the point where um, they took whatever was left of the antlers and just held them all up, and just that little assortment by itself was like one twenty-five, one fifty. Jeez, wow! Probably one of more one of the more interesting things in the auction um, was that set of um, longhorn. Longhorn cattle horns is really about the only way I can describe it. It's a, a set of, of um, longhorn antlers um, that had provenance back to the Dukes of Hazzard TV show. And oh, so great. if you've ever watched that, you yeah. remember the, the horns that Boss Hogg had on the front of his car. Oh, yeah. Apparently, yeah. Apparently this came from one of the props or was one of the props from that show and ended it up going for $10,000. Whoa, whoa,
1: whoa, whoa. You're out of your dang
2: mind. Are you serious? No, I'm serious. I'm serious. It's $10,000. Wow.
0: I mean, it's that... crazy. I was sad when I saw, I saw a jeweler found a baby rattle that was Paul's and returned it to the family.
2: Yes, that that's a little bit different. It was not associated with the auction. Those were some pieces that were taken to a uh, antique shop, and I'm not sure of the location right off the top of my head, but they ended up in an antique shop, and somewhere along the way, somebody pulled one of the drawers out or pulled the drawers out of the furniture completely and found that the rattle had fallen down behind the drawer. So the family had cleaned it out, but they didn't know to look back behind there if something had fallen out. But um, the antique shop, once it came to their attention that they had an engraved baby rattle that belonged to Paul, they got in contact with the family, and, uh, somebody from the family came by and picked it up. So it's, it's back in family hands as it should be. That's nice. Same thing. Those, um, if the monogram pillows from the early pictures of the auction items, uh, there were some pillows on that leather furniture we talked about that had Maggie's uh, monogram on them. And, uh, the family came through on Wednesday night before the auction, they came through to look through everything and make sure that there was nothing there that they wanted to take back where it belonged. And, um, uh, it ended up uh, they took those monogram pillows, so those are back in the family's hands as well.
1: And what I heard, no guns were auctioned off, right?
2: No guns, no, okay. no, no guns of any type. There were some, you know, shotgun cases and handgun cases, that type of thing, but no weapons themselves. No.
1: Any other items that were missing that jumped out to you? That's interesting or unique.
2: Yeah, there were um, a couple of. Um, they had a pair of matching. Uh, Tervis tumblers. If you're familiar with turvis line, it's a, oh, yeah. a plastic type drinking cup that won't sweat because it's insulated. They had a pair of those that were uh, tumbler size. So a uh, little short glasses, sort of like what you drink, uh, I guess, bourbon out of or whatever. Um, and those had LX monogram on them and they sold for $250 for the pair. Mm. Uh, wow. Another item uh, that was monogrammed was, was a Yeti um, koozie that you would slide a, a can into. So it's a stainless steel koozie that you'd slide a can down into that was monogrammed. Um, and that went for $400. Um, and Maggie's bicycle that we've seen from, oh, yeah. from pictures, uh, prior to the trial from the, uh, we saw it in the real estate listing and we saw it also in the pictures that came out from the uh, jury visit, uh, Maggie's bicycle went for $900. There were several items that were very personal-type items that, um, that fetched pretty good prices because they, they were personally linked back.
0: Are these just regular people buying these items, or are people buying them for some, a museum? Or well, I, I just don't really get why people are really wanting these items.
1: Like, are they murder aficionados, like yeah. murder—you know, just really into that kind yeah, of thing,
2: or- there are a lot of people collect this type of thing. Um, you know, they collect items that that come from notorious killers or from notorious cases. Um, it's sort of a collector's type uh, group out there, I guess, that gets into that kind of thing. And then there's a couple of museums that that do crime memorabilia as well. Um, and so I'm not sure uh, on these higher dollar items what their plans were. Um, I know that Mr. Jennings that got the the uh, leather furniture. I know he said his specific plan is to, to actually use it. He, he said he bought it because he, he needed it. I was right. going to use it.
1: And that makes sense, right?
2: Yeah, I think most people just wanted to to have something to say. You know, I've been to the auction. I had this. You know, this is who it belonged to.
1: Mm. Mm. Kind of creepy to me. Yeah, I, mean, I don't. I'm i a I, podcast about it, though. So. I
0: know. I, yeah. No, no judgment there. But I I don't know if I want that bad mojo in my
1: home.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, exactly.
1: Aubrey, I appreciate it, man. Anything, any place you want people to find you, reach out, have any questions or thoughts or whatever?
2: Um, yeah, they're welcome to reach out to me. Um, I'm on Reddit. Um, the largest Reddit group out there on this uh, this particular subject is uh, the Murdoch Family Murders. Um, and then also on Facebook, I'm uh, admin for a couple of the larger groups on there, uh, Horror in Hampton, as well as Murdoch Mayhem. You can find us on Facebook and Reddit.
1: Thanks, Aubrey. Thank you, Aubrey.
2: Great to talk to you guys.
1: Thanks, man. Thanks. And the second part of this podcast is an interview we did before Alec Murdoch even went to trial. So take that into consideration. And here is that interview. They are the directors of the HBO Max original doc series, Low Country, the Murdoch Dynasty. More Lucy and Daniel Savan join us. Well, uh, thanks for uh, joining us. We really appreciate it. We know you guys are are busy people, and we're going to get deep into the Low Country Murdoch Dynasty doc. Before we do that, give us an overview of what an executive producer does on a documentary.
3: Um, I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we are basically, you know, writers, directors, producers, and... Um, I guess an EP is someone that oversees stuff, but...
4: I mean, in this case of the Murdoch (laughs) Dynasty, we directed the show. uh, And, you know, and we directed it with a production of Campfire, uh, which is a production company that's based in L.A. And it was a hell of a journey, that's (laughs) for sure.
1: So how was the Murdoch? Was it pitched to you? Did you see the story and went to them? How how did it come about?
3: Yeah, I mean, we were pitched by Campfire and HBO on the project. And they were like, yeah, you probably know all about the Murdochs. Everybody's talking about it. And we were like, yeah, Rupert Murdoch, we know him. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And like in Israel, like nobody ever heard about this crazy family from South Carolina. Like for us, it was really new. So we came into it like totally oblivious. And like when we started reading stuff, we were just, I mean, <laughs> flabbergasted. I mean, it, it was just, it's such an insane story. Um, and so we were really into it fresh like it was all new to us
0: well did you have a hard time finding people to come on your documentary and talk to you because not being from here was that difficult
3: oh no we were like on the ground but I mean we spent almost like six months in South Carolina just back and forth back and forth and with an amazing production team that was really living on the ground there Um, But I must say, the Murdochs hold such a tight grip on South Carolina that people were extremely cautious and extremely afraid. I mean, in the past, talking to the media or even to your friends, you know, would get you fired, threatened, um, sometimes even worse. And it was people were really really cautious about it because it's not just talking about influential people it's talking about your local dda i mean mm-hmm. it, it's really really dangerous and it's it's a place where the police and the justice system and the banks hold such a tight knit connection that you know people really needed to think twice and three times before
1: talking to us, I was going to say when we started doing the podcast a few weeks after the murders, plenty of people told us to be careful. And I don't know it was like a threat on our lives, but it was just they're going to you'll say something wrong and they might sue you because they're litigation type family. Uh, did that ever come up? The possibility of something you put on there uh, being something that would be a cause con- for concern legally.
3: I mean, legal stuff is always, you know, hovering above every documentary production. So we were very, 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 you know, strict about making it all super, super legal. So that was not a real threat. The threats were on the people who talk to us and expose themselves. Mm -hmm. I
4: think, you know, I think that like Hampton County is, is a small county, you know, and everyone is neighbors. Everybody knows each other. And it's not easy, you know, to talk about a family that on the one hand holds so much power, and on the other hand, you know, it's kind of this loyalty of them being your neighbors for so many years. So, you know, I think because it's such a small place, and I mean, and we as Israelis, we totally understood, you know, the culture. Of, of knowing each other and coming from a, a small place that you know that basically like your instincts are to protect your neighbor to mm-hmm. protect you know the person that that has lived beside you for so many years but I think that I think that eventually people talk to us because because you know they they held so much power and somebody had to talk about it and especially especially the Murdoch's victims and so much trauma and so many victims around, you know, that I think that eventually people understood that this subject has to be talked about because otherwise, if it would just stay buried in the ground, you know, Mm -hmm. this county could not move forward, could not you know, move forward to a new place and to a more healthier place and cannot overcome their traumas. And I think I think that, you know, at the end of the day, that what drove people to talk to us. And also HBO, you know, has such a reputation of being fair and being honest and and doing a show that is not just like you know, like Really, really bringing the essence of the story and not looking for something just for the gossip of it, but really to bring the essence of of the story and the essence of, of, of this county that has been controlled by a very, very powerful family.
0: I watched the documentary. I thought it was so well done. And a few things that really stuck out to me were the hospital videos. I mean, how did you go about getting those?
3: Uh, we can not say. <laughs>
1: That's great.
3: Sometimes material just appears. Moving on to the next question. Yes. Yeah, but uh, we, we also thought so they were fascinating, and God knows how we got them, but they're amazing.
0: <laughs> yeah. They're, they're, you know, like, that was something we had not seen before. From,
4: yeah, and you hear this story from so many people, but to you know, but then you see the footage, and it's just it's unbelievable, right? Like Alex and he's dead, and uh, yeah, it's it's just it's it's an unbelievable footage. For and sure. The, also,
1: you had the the TikTok videos, which really painted a picture as well. Uh, was that a matter of digging deeper was that they magically appeared too,
0: and the tiktok videos just to for our viewers who may not have or listeners who may not have heard were from the boaters the night of the accident where mallory beach was killed killed.
3: yeah yeah i mean i i can't go into like the legalities of it because it all has to do with fair use laws and material that is already out there. But the thing is really, it, it's just so heartbreaking. I mean, and that's, that's another thing that is important to remember. You know, when, when we were watching different, you know, news flashes about this story, people were really trashing Paul and talking about him as like, you know, oh, he's this, you know, violent, drunk, you know, teenagers that caused so much harm. And obviously, you know, that may very well be a part of the story. But it's also really important to remember that this is a young man that was murdered. And for us, it was really important not to just paint it as this sinister devil that, you know, intentionally crashed the boat because he had a streak of evil, but in the end of the day yes he was irresponsible and yes he probably had uh, problematic sides of his personality but in the end of the day it was an accident and what wasn't an accident is someone you know cold-blooded murdering him i mean he was really butchered um and it's important to remember that Although he's a perpetrator, uh, in one story he's also a victim. So it was really important for us to show both sides.
4: Yeah, and I, and I think also that, you know, in Paul's case, like Daniel said, you know, the accident, the, the accident was an accident. Nobody thinks that he did it intentionally, right? Like he was drunk and he was on a boat and that's definitely wrong. And that's definitely you shouldn't do. But also we think that, you know, what was what was so problematic, of course, was how his dad, you know, dealt dealt with uh, with with this accusation. And how, you know, yeah. and what happened after the accident. Mallory was Paul's friend at the end of the day, you know, Mallory was loved by everyone. Uh Paul yeah. included. Paul included. So I don't you
0: know. And Anthony, I think, you know, when I saw him in your documentary, Anthony Cook, Mallory's boyfriend, really to me brought home exactly the sentiment that you're trying to say that you know, he said he actually forgave Paul. They they had a moment.
1: Yeah.
3: Yes, and and I think that's that's really you know, the essence of what we are trying to do when we do documentaries is bring a real three-dimensional picture because Anthony, what he said, and that was really tragic, is that he lost two of his friends. He lost Paul and he lost Mallory. And, you know, when you look at, like, these small news snippets, it's always about, you know, let's just look at it in a very one-sided way and, like, you know, mm-hmm. all the devil and then it's like, you know, going into this, trashing it. But it really is a tragedy no matter where you look for everybody involved.
1: And I, I think that uh, the way you do it is is a lot more difficult. It's easier to do the one-sided picture, podcast, documentary without the depth to it than it is to do what you did and we try to do is paint a picture of... All sides' emotions and what the town is going through and that sort of thing, and I and I, I, well, I applaud you for for going into that depth. It's much more difficult to do it that way than to pick a villain and and zero in and 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 just slam them.
0: Another victim that you really gave a face to in your documentary was Stephen Smith. Let's talk a little bit about that.
3: So Stephen, you know that is obviously, you know, the, the, for us personally, it's, it's the most tragic story and the story that hit us emotionally, you know, the, the strongest because every single one of the victims, be it Mallory or Paul or Maggie um, or others, everybody knows what happened, but nobody knows, you know, how they were murdered, but people have answers. Um, With Stephen nobody has any answers and nobody looked into it. I mean, and this is not taking away from any other tragedy, but the second Mallory Beach was lost, media was all over the place. The minute that Paul and Maggie were murdered, media was covering Hampton. Um, When Stephen got allegedly hit by a car, um, which none of us personally believe. Um, nobody covered it. It wasn't national news. Nobody, you know, did docu series about it. It wasn't a Stephen Smith podcast. And his family is was left with no answers. And till this day, they have no answers. And they, they don't care if the Murdochs did it. If it was a drunk driver. If it was, you know, a violent guy from another town, they just want answers. And they're not trying to blame anybody. They just want to have, you know, that small, you know, solace of of, of knowing what happened to, to and, their loved one.
4: And, and obviously, you know, and you know, obviously, you see from, from the series and from the episode, how the interrogation was very, very problematic, like how they handled the police, you know, and the law enforcement handled...
3: It was for sure. ...this investigation
4: was very problematic. And maybe, maybe if they would, you know, have really, you know, did their work Eight years ago, things would have been looked different and Stephen's family would have had answers today that unfortunately they don't have. And if, you know, if it's to, to, to learn something out of it is that this is somebody's son, this is somebody's family and you can't mishandle uh, uh, investigation like that. It's just, it's, it's just, It's, you know, it's not fair for anybody.
3: And also, you know, what we really, really wish from the bottom of our hearts is now that the Murdoch's grip is not as tight and they don't have so much control over the town, we really hope that somebody will speak up because people know what happened and people are keeping quiet and we are, you know, it's it's all about someone to crack one day and just you know, speak out and say, let me tell you what happened at night.
4: Absolutely. People know what happened. There are some people that hold the truth for Stephanie's pain who really know what what happened to her son. Yep.
0: Well, you did really an amazing job portraying all of the victims with this saga. And also I think
4: that if if we know exactly what happened, it will be another, you know, very important lesson of, of of who you are and, you know, uh, and everything that you could learn out of uh, Stephen's story, because, you know, like we portrayed in our series, it's not easy to, to, to be gay in, especially, you know, uh, in in South Carolina and, you know, and raising the story and giving it a voice and, and really giving a voice to, you can be whoever you want and you deserve Everything you know, like so, so I think that also this is this is was really important subject to us that you can be whoever you want and people will accept you because this is the right thing to do.
0: Well, the documentary was incredibly well done. Do you think you're going to have a part two?
3: Um, (laughs) Who knows? I mean, I I, I wish like someone would do it, Um, even if it's not us. I just want to know how the outcome of this trial is going to be. Because, I mean, honestly, when we were working on it, we were trying to hypothesize, and we threw out all kinds of series of, like, you know, you you probably heard heard them all about, like, what could have been the motive for the death of Paul and Maggie. And what the prosecutor is now saying that, you know, he is um, alleging that... Um, Alex killed them just to take the scent off with no real motive, with nothing that was, you know, they went about to expose him. She wasn't cheating on him. He's just saying that he just used his own family as a diversion. That is so incredibly sick Mm -hmm. that like we never even thought about it because it's like, for us, it's like, wait, that's not a motive. That's just like, that's just evil. So, I mean, first of all, I have no idea what will be the outcome. And, you know, we are all, we we know, you know, just as much as anybody just, you know, waiting to see how this trial will play out. But I would love to watch that trial because it's just absolutely horrible and just, you know, mesmerizing.
1: Uh, Daniel and more, we appreciate it. And by the way, I'd loved uh, the devil next door that you also oh, you. that was really the twist and turns and the, the the tenseness of it was was fantastic if you guys haven't watched it out there check that out
0: i have not i i'm good. putting it in the queue
1: it's very good uh daniel moore thank you guys appreciate it oh thank you thank, thank you very
4: much for
1: having us. we hope we uh talk soon have a good day uh that was cool You get some uh, behind the scenes type thoughts and with the going through a director's mind when they're doing a doc.
0: Yeah. My husband's going to love this episode because I think, and you know, if he had to do it all over again, this would be what he would like to do.
1: Really? Be the, yes. <laughs> yes. I, and and uh, again, we did that before the trial. So just keep that in mind as you, as you listen to that episode, uh, you can reach out to us, Murdoch podcast.com, Murdoch podcast and Facebook. And also hardly ever mention it, but I also do a radio show called the Matt and Ramona show on mix 107.9 in charlotte or mix1079.com if you're not in charlotte and i've been doing it for 20 yeah just had their 22nd anniversary a minute wow. ago morning six to ten so my boss will appreciate me saying that because often i'll say i'm leaving work early to go <laughs> do a podcast at the beginning they're like oh what are you talking about
0: yeah, they were nice enough to let you go to hampton and right. and record from there
1: exactly exactly all right we're thankful grateful and all that good stuff and we'll talk soon friend
0: my name is bill huffman and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today, wherever you get your favourite shows.
2: Creeping,
4: don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity.
2: He was a very
4: knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor.
1: The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you.
4: Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point, when you're wrong.
2: It was all fictitious. You stole from my son, who has a disability.
3: Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of.
1: A psychopath is somebody who
3: lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually.
4: To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.